0: Some timeless wisdom that has been passed through the ages, a little nugget, I don't know who originally said it, but it has somehow made its way to us today, is you should never meet your heroes. Every one of us has heroes, whether it's, you know, we have our dads and things like that, but we also have, you know, the, the actor or actress that we like or the sports player or whatever, their skill marvels us. And if we're fortunate enough to bump into them one day, uh, almost 100% of the time, they lower in our minds because they're almost certainly going to be jerks <laughs> and ruin your view of them. And unfortunately, that is true uh, of many you know, so-called celebrity pastors. Right Now that we can podcast almost anyone on the planet, we become enamored with the pastors with book deals, and then a lot of the time we bump into them and we realize that Great ministry skill doesn't always equal godly character. In my early 20s, I interned at a, at a big church, and so one of my jobs was anytime a big-name pastor came in, I would drive them around. And a lot of them were, were really kind. A couple of them were, uh, you know, the opposite of kind. But, you know, it's just an unfortunate thing. It's why the quote exists, don't meet your heroes. And so today we're going to get to see, is that true of Jesus. He's just finished preaching the most famous sermon in the entire world that will last through history longer than any sermon. The crowd's jaws are on the floor. They're amazed with his preaching skill. He's going to heal a leper, and he'll continue to heal, and people's jaws remain on the floor. He has incredible ministry skill, but we're going to get a glimpse today into his character. We're going to get to see his heart as he is doing ministry. And we're going to get to see, meet our hero, does his character match his great ministry skills. We're going to see three things, uh, a desperate desperate outcast, a tender savior, and total restoration. A desperate outcast, a tender savior, and total restoration. Restoration So let's jump right into this new section. Look at verse one. "When he, he being Jesus, came down from the mountain, a great crowd followed him." So we are entering, based on this verse, we're entering into a new section of Matthew. At the beginning of chapter five, this is the beginning of chapter eight. Chapter five, when we started it in June I've been in it for a long time began with, and a great crowd followed him, and he went up the mountain. And then we spent chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, sitting on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, listening to the Messiah preach this incredible sermon. And now that's done, and he's coming down the mountain, and the great crowds are following him. We're beginning a new section. And remember how the last one ended. Carl preached last week, the last two verses, as he wraps up the sermon, the crowd is in awe at his authority. No one speaks like this man. We've never heard anyone speak like this man. They're at awe at the authority of his words. And in this new section, we're going to see them be in awe at the authority of his deeds, of his power, particularly his healing power. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, we're going to see him heal. Over the next few weeks, these three groups, all people who are considered uh, second-class citizens, We're going to see him heal a leper today, a sick person that was unclean. We'll see him heal a Gentile, and then we'll see him heal a woman, Peter's mother-in-law as he goes and he's demonstrating the authority that people have just been standing in awe of from the sermon. And this will lead right up to our first uh, cost of discipleship, where Jesus actually says, what does it require you follow me. So that'll be the new section we'll be in over these next few weeks, and we'll look at the first one today, Jesus encountering this leper. So he's coming down the mountain, he's given us those four examples, the, the two ways, the two trees, the two pleas, and then the two houses, wraps it up, comes down the mountain, everyone's in awe of him, and they're following him wherever he goes, and then look at verse two, the first word we see, or first two words, and behold... So new section, and then Matthew, the author of this, the first word is behold. Now when you see that, your ears should perk up, right? Matthew is trying to say, hey, I'm about to, you're about to see something. Look, something's about to happen. Let your eyes be drawn here. Uh, one of my wife's greatest annoyances with me is I have a ailment where if I'm watching something with you, especially if it's a sport or a movie that I've seen before, the word watch and look, will come out of my mouth 12,000 times. Hey, watch, watch. Are you watching? And then the answer is yes. Look at my eyes staring at the screen. And now, because God has a sense of humor, Harvey, (laughs) my three-year-old, when he's watching like Formula One with me, watch that. Watch, watch, watch. And then something else comes out of me, fury, right? I am watching, son. Uh, And so that's what Matthew's doing. Hey, Quit thinking about other things and look at what is about to happen. He's drawing our eyes to something. And so what is he drawing our eyes to? Verse two, and behold, a leper came to him. Jesus is coming down the mountain. The great crowd standing in awe is following him and a leper comes to him. Someone in Jesus' day with leprosy. Leprosy is this kind of uh, disfiguring Skin disease that would have been incredibly painful. It was highly contagious, and there was no cure that anyone knew of. In fact, the idea of cleansing leprosy, healing leprosy, was kind of on par with raising the dead, right? It was this this incurable disease that they thought. So if, if you had leprosy, you had extreme physical discomfort, but perhaps worse than that were the social consequences of having leprosy You couldn't live. You weren't allowed to live in towns with anyone. You had to stay away. If anyone came near you, you had to scream unclean, right? So they knew that they should flee from you. And because there was this, it was highly contagious and, and there was no cure, it carried just this stigma. People would react in, in just terror if they saw you. So, so immerse yourself for a little bit in the, in the streets of Galilee with this leper. This man coming to Jesus, he has a horrible skin disease. He not only can't participate in society, although that's bad enough, but society itself views him as a disease. Notice he's not called Joseph, the guy who has leprosy. He's so identified with this disease that his very name is the leper. People would shriek as he walks by. People would grab their kids and quickly turn away. Society just doesn't want you to stay away. They would rather you not exist. Your very presence is a threat to their lives. Imagine a life like that. We all got a sliver of a taste for like three weeks in 2020. You had to stay in your house with your TV and your spouse and your family and then you had to socially distance, a couple feet, right? And we went insane. Imagine a lifetime of that times a million. You happen to stumble upon someone and by law, you are required to scream out your condition and they flee from you in horror. See the depths of this man's misery. See the depths of this leper that's coming to him. He has a horrible, disfiguring, painful skin disease. People are repulsed at him. He's been rejected by his society. He has no source of comfort for his ailment. No physical comfort, nothing to relieve pain that we would say must be relieved. No Advil. And he has no sorts of emotional comfort, no way of being cared for by a friend, no way to be healed or restored into society. He has no hope. No hope. This is the man that Matthew says, behold, look at this. This is not a normal situation. This man, a leper, came to Jesus. The great crowd following Jesus almost certainly screaming as they flee away. So he comes to Jesus, and then look how. Look how he comes to Jesus. This is really important for us to see. Look at the rest of verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So how does he actually come before Jesus? He doesn't just run up and start talking. There's some very specific things here that's important for us to see because it's the only way anyone can actually approach Jesus. Jesus. It's the only right posture before Jesus. Three things. He comes desperate, he comes empty, and he comes recognizing who Jesus is. He comes desperate. He is very aware of the social expectations on him. So what is making him overcome all of the social pressure in all of the world to go throw himself at Jesus' feet? He is desperate. There's no other way I can be healed. There's no other hope I have in, the, in this life except this man. He is desperate. He knows he's doomed to die in his misery, if not for Jesus' intervention. He's desperate. He throws himself down. Second, he comes empty. Notice, he kneels. This position of supplication, this position of begging, right? This position of emptiness. I've got nothing to bring. You're the one that's going to have to do things. I'm kneeling before you. He is not the rich young ruler showing up and saying, I have kept all of your laws since birth. He's not the false disciples we saw a few weeks ago bringing his resume. He's not even trying to pitch Jesus on why he should heal him, right? It would be good for your name. Your ministry would be you know, it would gain fame if you were to heal me. I have this incurable disease. He brings nothing. He simply throws himself down and saying, unless you do something, nothing will change. You're the one who has to interact. He comes desperate. He comes empty. And then lastly, he recognizes who Jesus is. He calls him Lord. He recognizes his authority. Notice, if you will. You will make me clean. All you have to do is will it. All you have to do is want it. Just think it in your head. That's all that is required to make me clean. There's no special potions necessary. I don't have to go wash specially or anything like that. All you have to do is will it, and I will be clean. He knows the authority of the one that he's talking to. All you have to do, Jesus, is say a word or think a thought in your head. And I will be clean. He recognizes his authority, and I would say he recognizes something about Jesus' character. It's one thing to know that Jesus is powerful. It's one thing to know that he is authoritative. But what makes this leper think Jesus will give him the time of day? That Jesus wouldn't shriek back like the rest of the crowd or rebuke him for being so calloused and rushing in and potentially contaminating everyone. He must be assuming something about this rabbi's character, perhaps that he's merciful. And we'll see a bit more of that in the next verse. So he comes desperate, he comes empty, and he comes recognizing who Jesus is. That's the only way you can come before Jesus. There is one right posture before the holy king of the universe, and it is this. Desperate, empty, I bring nothing, and you have everything that I need. Desperate, empty, recognizing who he is. Are you desperate? Do you know to the core of who you are? I have no hope apart from him. I have no joy apart from him I have no life apart from him No one in this room to my knowledge has leprosy right No one in this room everyone in this room was born with a disease far worse depravity right Everyone in this room was born with a sin nature are you desperate for healing Are you desperate like this leper, knowing I've got no hope of overcoming this nature-defining disease in me unless he intervenes? Do you know that there's no satisfaction apart from him, no joy apart from him? Are you desperate for him, or are you content? My life's pretty good, right? He could make it better i 'll give you that, but you know i 'll call him if i if I need him next promotion that I need or the next time i 'm in a jam i 'll give him a call right are you content or are you desperate for him? You must be desperate for him or you will never really come to him. This is the only way you can come to him. Are you desperate? Are you empty? Are you empty? are you bringing him your resume or do you know the poverty of your own soul do you know that you have nothing to bring our culture screams everything you need for happiness and fulfillment is right here all you have to do is live it out be your best you you're already enough just on your own the gospel says the exact opposite you're bankrupt here You're empty here. You've got a disease here. You need a savior. You are empty. Are you desperate? Are you empty? Unless you see your emptiness, you will not go to him. Mark 2, 15 through 17, Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, these rejected, dirty people. As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many who followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, or the holy people, the teachers of the law, those who tried to keep the scriptures with all their might, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well, those who are full, have no need of any physician, but those who are sick. I came not for the righteous, not for the full, I came for sinners. The sick, the empty, know they need a doctor. This leper is very aware that he needs a savior. And unless you have that same awareness, you will not go to him. He didn't come for the full or for the righteous, he came for the lepers, he came for sinners. Are you empty? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the empty. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones who actually go to the savior and be filled. And then lastly, do you see him? Do you see that he's the only one who can actually heal you? Do you recognize who he is? Is he one of many options of your satisfaction? Is he one of many options for healing? You'll try this, and if that doesn't work, I guess I'll turn to him as the last result. Or do you know he is the only one that you can go to? He's the only one that can bring life, the only one who can truly satisfy and bring joy. Do you throw yourself down at him and say, you, you are it. I can do nothing for myself You have to heal me because here's the irony of this story. The leper, like Tim said before we sang this morning, the leper is the one that everyone's like, he's the dirty one. He's the empty one. He's the diseased one. Here's the irony of this story. Everyone in this great crowd is just as diseased. They just don't know it. Everyone in this crowd is in just as much desperate need of healing their emptiness as the leper. They just don't know it. And the leper does. And Jesus says, He's the one I came for, the ones who recognize their poverty. He's the only one that can heal. And this is the only way you can actually go before Him. You see your own desperate need of Him and go before Him. And that's exactly what the leper does. So he comes down, he's a desperate outcast, throws himself down at the feet of Jesus. And how does Jesus react? How does he react? As again, the crowd almost certainly is sprinting backwards with cries of terror. How does Jesus react? Does he react like any other rabbi and flee? Because this guy's going to make him ceremoniously unclean, ceremonially unclean. Does he rebuke, again, the leper for being so rash? Does he revolt in disgust and just kind of, okay, be healed you know, from afar? What does he do? Look at verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. A leper with this incurable, highly contagious, life-ruining disease bursts in to this crowd, throws himself down. And Jesus doesn't do what everyone in the world would have expected him to do and what everyone around him would have been doing, jumping backwards, probably in disgust. Right? Rabbis don't associate with the sick and the gross. See the Pharisee story we just looked at. Is that how he reacts? No. As the crowd runs away, what does Jesus do? He draws near. As the crowd revolts in disgust, Jesus moves towards the leper. And Matthew here, again, is slowly unfolding something and is drawing your eyes very close. Instead of shrieking back, Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him. is drawing your eyes to something that we must, must, must see. Jesus doesn't shriek back. Notice he doesn't even say, be clean. He doesn't even just use his words. He could. He will in the next story. We'll see that next week. Jesus doesn't even encounter the person that he heals. He just wills it, and the person is clean. He could have done that here. He doesn't. What does he do? He stretches out his hand and touches him. He stoops down to the dirty, disgusting, rejected outcast and puts his hands on him and heals him. What are the scriptures trying to show you right here? about your Savior? What is God drawing your eyes to about his Son? You must see this. This verse is the difference between a life of cold, dead, lifeless religion and a living communion with a living, personal God and a loving Savior. You could read this story and just conclude Jesus' is powerful He's the healer, he can do miracles, he's authoritative, and he's God. And all those things would be true, and Jesus could still remain abstract, still remain very, very distant to you, still remain just a character in a story from 2,000 years ago. But notice, the Scriptures aren't just showing you the fact that Jesus is a healer. The Scriptures aren't just showing you the fact that he is... God or powerful or anything like that. The scriptures are showing you right here who he is. The scriptures are giving a glimpse into his heart for sinners. His heart for the outcast. We're getting right here to meet our celebrity pastor. We're getting to meet the hero and see, oh my goodness, what a glorious heart he has. He doesn't shriek back. He draws near. He doesn't just speak when he could. He reaches out and touches. Why? Because he's not just a savior. He's a tender savior. Though he holds the universe together every waking moment. He is the most infinitely powerful being in the universe. He's gentle and he's lowly. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. He's caring and he's compassionate. Notice all for the most revolting people. Those that no one else would even dare take a second look at. See who your savior is. See his heart. Hear how glorious it is and how gracious it is. How lovely he is and how lowly. See the heart of your Savior. If you don't see this, he'll just be a cold, distant story. You might believe in him. Your your intellectual belief might go to him. Your affections won't. You will not long for him. You will not love him unless you see who he actually is. But oh my goodness, when you see his heart for sinners, when you see his heart for you, that the worst of you draws him even closer. All of your Christian duty will be transformed into delight. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor, I quote him often, says this, You may read your Bible, you may pray over it till you die. You may wait on the preached word every Sabbath day, but if you are not brought to cleave to him, to look to him, to believe in him, to cry out inwardly in adoration, my Lord and my God. How great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. then outward observances of the ordinances is all in vain to you. Do not miss who your savior is. Do not miss the heart of your savior. When you sin, when you are riddled with shame, When you have those thoughts that everyone in this room has of, you're the worst, right? How could anyone love you or want you? Anyone who actually does like you, you have just got fooled, right? But anyone who really knew you would be done with you. When you sin and those thoughts flood in, the only thing that's going to cause you to run towards Jesus and not away from him is seeing his heart here. That he knows everything you've ever done. He knows the things you pray people don't find out about. He knows every thought, every wicked thought that's ever passed through your head, the deep cavern of your depravity that you would not dare glimpse over. He has searched the depths of it, and it doesn't make him shriek back. It draws him closer. He doesn't shriek away from you in disgust. It draws him near. That's the only thing that will make you run to him when you sin rather than away from him, knowing his arms are just as open as they've ever been, filled with mercy and filled with love. What else is going to cause you to actually set your affections on him than seeing this glorious heart? You will not wake up early in the morning to go read the scriptures and commune with a cold, distant God. Or if you do, it won't last long. Or it will just you know, build up some sort of legalistic moralism within your heart, but who wouldn't get up early to meet with this savior? One of my favorite uh, journal entries from McShane uh, is this, I rose up early to seek God and found him whom my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet with such company? Here we see Jesus isn't just the bringer of the good news, he is the good news. You get him when you come to him. So, this is how, right here, this is how you let the scriptures tear down your false view of Jesus, that he's cold, uninterested, ashamed of you, chose you because uh, the, the God made him and he, he you know, kind of loves you but just tolerates you, he doesn't like you. Let this tear that down. Let the scriptures, this is God's word, tear down that ridiculous view of him and build up this glorious one, who he is, his heart for sinners, his heart for you. We're getting a glimpse into our celebrity pastor here. So Jesus, moved by compassion, reaches out and touches the leper and says, I will be clean. Which, by the way, only God can say this. Notice Jesus isn't like the prophet saying, thus says the Lord, be clean. He's saying, thus says me. Be clean. Right? Only God can say that. And what happens immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Instead of, notice, instead of Jesus getting leprosy, which is what everyone would have expected, he just put his hand on this highly contagious, incurable, diseased man. And instead of the leprosy flowing to Jesus, Jesus' purity flows to the man. In this divine exchange, the thing that is contagious is Jesus' healing. Right? So it is with every encounter with Jesus. So we see this desperate outcast. We see him encounter a a tender Savior. And then the last thing we see is a a total restoration, a total restoration, total salvation. Verse four, and Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Okay, so that, that, that line there, see that you say nothing to anyone, uh, that might be what's often called the messianic secret. Uh, it shows up in Matthew a few times. If you've read the, the Gospel of Mark, it shows up all the time. Jesus is constantly telling people that he's uh, healing, that he casts demons out of. He's telling even the demons when they show up and say, hey, you're the son of God. He always tells them to be quiet, shut your mouth, which our reaction to that is always, they're evangelizing. Why don't you tell them to scream it louder? And this is uh, often, again, called the messianic secret. What Jesus is doing there is Jesus is trying to hush, to quiet down what will lead to misunderstandings of him. Everyone loves Jesus, he is a celebrity. Great crowds are following him, his fame is spreading all over. The regions. Why? Who, who wouldn't love a food multiplying, healing, amazing teacher guy who can raise people from the dead? Right. His fame is spreading like crazy. But everyone who hears of him, their first thought is, "How can he benefit me?" I can think of no better military leader to overthrow the Romans than someone who can raise up soldiers from the dead after they're killed, and can multiply food. We don't have to wait for the harvest or anything like that. Everyone is constantly thinking, how can Jesus benefit me? See Peter's great confession. Lord, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right, and I'm going to die. And how does Peter react? Rebukes him. Very classic Peter. Why? You're not supposed to die. You're supposed to kill all of our enemies here, politically, in this life. And Jesus says, no, no, you've got man's concerns here. You're not thinking the way God thinks. Right, so, Jesus is trying to be quiet, right? Don't, don't spread my fame uh, because you're going to spread it wrongly. That might be what's happening here. Another option is Jesus is uh, just telling this man, stay focused. Your healing isn't complete yet. You need to go offer a gift so that you can be ultimately restored back into society. I actually think that's what's more likely here. This is a. Don't turn to the left or to the right. Just go do what needs to be done so that you can be restored into society. Again, so verse 4, let's read it one more time. Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer a gift that Moses commanded. He's referring there to Leviticus 13 and 14 uh, for a proof to them. So if you were healed of a skin disease, uh, leprosy or any other one, you would go to the priest, you would uh, show them that you've been healed, and then you would offer a sacrifice, a gift, and then you could be uh, declared clean and restored back into society. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Go do this. Right? And he's not just saying, you know, go fill out the rest of the paperwork that will kind of get you back. He's saying, your healing isn't complete yet. There's a sense in which Jesus meets his need, heals his leprosy, but says, I've come to completely restore you. There's almost two healings in this passage. In encounters with Jesus, never just fix your issues and then you move on. He, he, he heals your whole person. This leper gets to stop being the leper and go back to being Joseph or whatever his name is. We actually don't know. Whatever his name is, he can be called the one who is healed. He can be embraced by his friends again after years and years and years of not encountering a single person's touch. He can dine with his family again. He can worship in the temple again. Jesus hasn't just fixed his problem. He's restored his life. He's brought total restoration to his life, and so he does with us. So many of us so often just stop at he forgave our sins We had a stain, he wiped it away and made us clean, and then we move on and don't see that is just the door that's cracking open to the infinite blessing that comes to us when we encounter Jesus. I came that they might have life, not just have their sins forgiven, not just have their problems fixed, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's healing with Jesus. Yes, he wipes away the negative, but he fills you. He restores your soul. That's why all throughout the New Testament, salvation is described from death to life. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Uh, Claudia and I are in the process of adopting. So we've got two kids. She's pregnant. We're adopting. Pray for us, right? That's my sermon application. Um, So we've, we've done all the paperwork stuff. We've been support raising. We've been doing all the things we need to do, a lot of hard work, all to make the relationship possible. But there will come a day where we're matched with a birth mom and the baby is put in our arms. And oh my goodness, that's when life begins. And so it is with your salvation, with this incredible Savior. He lives the perfect life that you should have lived on your behalf. He dies the atoning death for you. Yes, and amen. We were stained and he made us clean. But then he takes you by the hand and walks you to his Father and says, now life begins. Here's my Father and your Father. The first bit of healing, of wiping away your sin, is just the door Cracking open to the unthinkable blessing that comes with life in Christ. Look at Ephesians 1. This is all one sentence in Greek, by the way. Be grateful for English and punctuation. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, who has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, an inheritance from God, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." forgives your sins, the door cracks open, Ephesians 1 floods in, and the inheritance of heaven is poured into your life. Jesus doesn't just fix your problem. He restores your soul. Another way to say it is, all that is his is now yours because he is yours. Or rather, you are his. That's the salvation that Jesus brings, and that is the beginning of this new section we are in in Matthew as this great preacher, this great rabbi, the king of the kingdom has come down the mountain. He meets this desperate outcast. He displays for us that he is a tender savior and he brings total restoration to the leper. And the most incredible thing about this for you and for me is that this isn't just a story of a tender savior interacting with a leper 2,000 years ago. But if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if, you, if you've placed your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, it's because he has reached out his hand and touched you. Like we've said, everyone in this room has an ailment, has a disease far, far, far worse than the leprosy in this story. And every single one of you, if you've trusted in him, have been cleansed. How does he cleanse us? How does Jesus actually cleanse you of your depravity, of your sin disease, by becoming a leper himself? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only one that was ever pure became a leper so that you might be clean he was cast out. He became the one who was rejected. He became the rejected outcast so that you could be brought in. All his friends leave him at his most desperate hour. His closest friend arguably denies him in his most desperate hour. And on the cross, what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's never been someone who's been cast out like Jesus and he was cast out so that you could be brought in. He was rejected so that you could be restored. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. He became the one that everyone shrieked back when he approached so that you could be restored. And he does restore us to the dwelling place we were made for. What does Paul say? Where's where's our citizenship if we're in Christ? It's in heaven. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. How does this great story end? Behold, let your eyes be drawn. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He brings us back to the garden in a sense where we will see him and be with him face to face for all of eternity. So if you aren't a Christian, if you're not a believer, whether you see your emptiness or not, see it. There is no other one that you can go to for healing. There is no other cure out there. Throw yourself down at the feet of this merciful Savior who is ready to reach out his hand. And if you have thrown yourself down, you are a believer, never take your eyes off of him. See his heart for sinners. How. The worst of you just draws him closer and worship and abide and commune and let your gaze be set upon his glorious face. Who wouldn't want to meet with such company? Let's pray. Father, you have sent your son as the exact image of you. We have your scriptures that testify to you. You've told Moses your character, your merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. But the perfect picture of who you are is your glorious son. And so I would imagine the enemy's greatest scheme will be to turn our eyes away in the same way that he lied about your character to Adam and Eve, that you had some false motives in giving them the law, that he would do everything he can to turn our eyes away from your son's unthinkable heart. And so I pray that you would shut his mouth and you would just let us sit in awe of you and your glorious son, that we would see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, your son, and that we would see the healing that is there for us. For salvation and for every day since that we pray, forgive us our debts, knowing that the forgiveness is there and that the life is there from him. Invade our hearts, O God, with this glorious reality of who you are and the glorious news of the gospel that this savior has come and we can have life in him. I pray in his beautiful name. Jesus' name, amen.